decided to capitalize on uh, Welcome to Marwan Fever and talk about uh, Robert Zemeckis' Beowulf today on the show. Yes, two movies that have so much in common, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, and we are here today with... Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Simon. Simon Howell. Um, I've been on once before mm-hmm. when you forced me to watch the entirety of Studio 60 on the Sunset <laughs> yeah. for about, I'd say, charitably 45 minutes of content. yeah. Really, maybe 15 minutes worth anyone's time. And despite us all being in the same city, I made us do it on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just real professionalism hours all around. Yeah, yeah. Sat that one out. I yeah, think. you were yeah. in uh, Spain watching Friends. Yeah, yeah, good show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, uh, this was Alan's suggestion, and I was more than happy to watch it, but to my knowledge, this was Simon's first time. Yeah, um, had it not been for this podcast, I really... I'm having a difficult time imagining the scenario where I watch the 2007 major motion picture Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not really a film that uh, has a lot of purchase it's these days. It sort of hasn't had its speed racer moment, I yeah. feel like, either. And it won't. I don't <laughs> think that it will. Unless this prompts it. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. This podcast, well, maybe. This is why we do the podcast. Uh, are you just not a Robert Zemeckis uh, fan in the first place? Or at least a mocap fan? <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about mocap or Robert Zemeckis. I mean, I think Zemeckis is an interesting guy. Um, and there's certainly, there's a lot of creatives kicking around this movie that I hadn't even realized were involved. And it's just like a real motley crew of stuff happening here. I mean, it's a very strange convergence of project and cast and creatives that I think if if someone had said to you a few years earlier that this is that this was going to happen and it was going to cost one hundred and fifty million dollars, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like you 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 know very reasonably tell them to fuck off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we should give some context here for anybody who's unaware of the specifics on Beowulf. It came out during a period in Zemeckis' career when he was working with uh, motion capture animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like I read a few interviews around the Polar Express. The Polar Express was the first movie he did in this style, um, where he like tried to claim that it wasn't animation at all. <laughs> right, and Polar Express was only like a year or two earlier. Right? Yeah, so yeah, he was coming yeah. off. Of and then pretty he did. Uh, he signed a deal with Disney, and the only thing that came of that was a Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey. Yeah. Um, wow, I forgot that existed too. Even though Polar Express has had a surprisingly long shelf life for yeah. a movie that I don't remember at all. Uh, Though I have seen it at some point. Well, it's just because I think mocap was sort of considered the big technological innovation, at least in terms of special effects of the of that decade. In terms of when you think of like Lord of the Rings and Pirates of the Caribbean movies having all mocap characters and those being very acclaimed elements of those movies, but then when someone would, would try to do an all mocap movie, people were like, oh, no, no, go away. I think the the animation of the humans rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. In particular, the dead eyes. Dead eyes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then after Christmas Carol, uh, Disney canceled their deal with, uh, I think it was called Imageworks, his company, yeah. his mm-hmm. animation company. So Zemeckis went back to making uh, flight <laughs> live action movies mm-hmm. uh, with movie stars. 
Yeah, and this is a particularly... So if you don't know what Beowulf is, I think it might be worth taking a moment to explain that if you never took an English lit course, you've probably even heard of Beowulf, but you you may not have spent any time reading the 3,000-some-odd-line, <laughs> 1,700-year-old, uh, or 1,400-year-old uh, yeah. poem. Or seen the 1999 DTV Christopher Lambert. Uh, <laughs> right, vehicle. or the... Uh, or, or King Bozo, Gerard Bono was in a Beowulf movie a year before this Which I think was a Canadian co-production. Yeah, I, I think it was... Um, Beowulf and Grendel, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was, uh, was stop-motion, wasn't it? No, no, I think it was, it was live, live action. action. Yeah, it was live action, but weren't the monsters stop motion? Like I, there was some. I've never even I, like I've never even seen like a still from it, <laughs> so I wouldn't know. We'll we'll need to we'll we'll get back to you on the Beowulf cinematic universe. I did a bad <laughs> job of, of preparing for this by not watching that. I feel like, but I'll yeah, watch. I forgot about that and then thought, wow, that's really in our wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we kind of skipped it. Um, uh, but let's to talk about the development of this before it became a Robert Zemeckis uh, production. It was supposed to be a Roger Avery film. Uh, Roger okay. Avery, who co-wrote Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. uh, Killing Zoe, and uh, podcast favorite Rules of Attraction, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also Killing Person with Car, his other yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this was the last movie he wrote before going to jail for uh, manslaughter because mm-hmm. he drove over someone drunk. Um, yeah, have you actually seen Killing Zoe? It's this is like one of those movies where like every shot is like a camera placed on like a moving tray of food or something. Oh or... god, that makes it sound more interesting. But the original script that was written in the nineties uh, by Avery and Neil Gaiman, I think Gaiman was involved in the original yeah. one, but it was supposed to be like a, a low budget action movie that was also sort of a chamber drama, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at some point, Robert Zemeckis got his hands on it and said, <laughs> yeah. write the craziest action scenes you can think of yeah. because it will cost me as much to do a giant action scene as it will uh, to like film a bunch of chickens running yeah. around. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we got the 2007 motion picture, which was met with indifference, I kind of want to say. I, I, I want to say, I, it's hard to, to know. I mean, I, I did read some of the period reviews. I think... I think Zemeckis's relative prestige and the novelty of the animation style, mm-hmm. I think, carried it for a lot of like pretty polite reviews. It de- mm-hmm. definitely wasn't a fiasco. No, uh, the box office I think was a bit of a disappointment. Although, I mean, I looked at it; it was almost two hundred million dollars. I don't really know what they were expecting. With yeah, this. it seems like it broke even. Yeah, um, I, I think that it like just trying to advertise this movie must have been a nightmare because it's you know a fairly graphic action movie. Uh, but it's animated. <laughs> well, I remember the big selling point at the time being it was seeing Angelina Jolie naked as a yeah. cartoon. As a cartoon. <laughs> but I also remember seeing this in the theater opening weekend and it being a largely an audience of children. So yeah. I think they did yeah, that. Yeah, because it was PG-13, which mm-hmm. even Angelina Jolie said herself, like, I'm very confused by the rating of this film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, I ended up watching the unrated uh, director's cut, or I don't know if they got an R rating or not. Anyway, I looked at the actual differences between mm-hmm. the cuts Really, the only difference is the unrated cut is gorier. Like, none of the sex, like, none of the nudity is any different. Yeah. And most of the actual setups of the violence, like, Beowulf bursting blood gorily yeah. out of the insides of a monster are the same. So, like, the, the rating is quite mad. Uh, I was wondering that myself, because I wasn't sure which version that I had uh, downloaded from the Pirate Bay. <laughs> uh, like, you see a lot of uh, ass. There's, like, yeah. a whole fight yeah. scene where Beowulf uh, fights naked. And there are some comical, like, ways of hiding his uh, which, genitals. Which we had seen four months earlier in the Simpsons movie. The same, <laughs> yeah, just gag. 
Um, Came out the same year as Eastern Promises, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the, the, (laughs) the nude fighting is one of the few things about the film that, and I'm really working on some very old English lit memories here. But the the nude the nude fight is really is one of the most faithful. It's the most surprising faithful aspect of the movie because it was the thing I wasn't really expecting they'd actually go ahead and do. Um, <laughs> and then I also thought about I don't know if either of you watched any of the behind the scene, the scene stuff, but um, I started thinking about the logistics of well if they'd really if they'd really been brave they would have not only shown Dong but they would have like had to apply those mocap to <laughs> yeah, his, yeah. like the, to, they'd have to, to figure junk. out which which parts of this are really going to be moving <laughs> and I, I i think that's still undiscovered territory well has ray winstone even seen his penis probably in like 20 years certainly wasn't in any shape to see it when he was yeah. shooting this i'm yeah. sure they had like somebody else do all the like really physical yeah, stuff yeah. for this actually no they did no no, no. <laughs> um the the way that they and it's really actually worth seeing the 25 or so minute featurette it's on youtube uh, about how they filmed it and my my favorite aspect of of how they of how they did it was in the sequence where grendel is played by chris uh, crispin glover who's great actually mm-hmm. um uh he is sort of ripping through all these people so they was shot on two sets one of them was uh, a half size where, because Grendel's supposed to be like 12 feet tall, they just shot Crispin Glover as Crispin Glover size and mm-hmm. then made a bunch of three foot puppets for him mm-hmm. to rip. And like wow. they had all these tear points <laughs> and he just kind of goes around and, and tears them. And then they had another one where it's like a, like a wireframe statue um, that, that you can actually climb on. And it was the, the actual size of Grendel and, and they had, uh, and they did, they, they showed, uh, Ray Winstone climbing onto it and it bucks like a rodeo horse. <laughs> it's wild. We should also mention this was one of the first 3D movies, at least oh, yeah. the 3D Renaissance. It's really obvious when you watch it. Yeah, I saw the spears. Yeah. Things, I've actually, because 3D uh, theaters in Winnipeg were not equipped. They're not equipped with 3D at the time. I think not until like 2009. But I specifically remember seeing this in theater in 2D in the, all the shots of like spears pointing and being yeah, like, oh, yeah. this is a little awkward. And I've still never seen the movie in 3D. Never, never <laughs> will. Because I don't think, uh, I don't know. I if think Tiff... I did see it in 3D. I can't remember, but... Um... Yeah, I guess maybe we should set up like the the premise of the story mm-hmm. because it's uh so it's a uh, based on a epic old English poem but set in Denmark in the dark ages uh, yeah, among or, Vikings. Originally dating from around 700 AD or so, uh, with the first written instance being a couple centuries later. The I mean it's really not it's not a very labyrinthine plot or anything. Basically, um the Danish king uh played by Hrothgar. Hrothgar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's played by Sir Anthony Hopkins. Was he a knight at the time? Had he been knighted already? Probably. Yeah. Um, if not, I'm sure this... this Who, unlike Ray Winstone, is playing fatter than his actual self. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, essentially, his kingdom is being besieged by this uh, this beast, Grendel, as I mentioned, played by uh, Crispin Glover. Um, who's basically like, if you can imagine, Gollum except ten times the size. Pretty much the same idea. And even uglier. It, really quite freakish. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. And um, Ray Winstone plays Beowulf, the uh, foreign hero. He's a geet, I believe. Um, and I guess we should uh, mention here that Ray Winstone, at the time, still, I suppose, is a uh, rather heavyset uh, middle-aged man. And in this movie, mm-hmm. he's playing a young, jacked, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Nordic hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've he, clearly it's, it's his voice and it's his movements. Uh, like I said, he's he's and been his all face, I guess. 
but well, kind little, of. A little, a little. It's it's weird because they've they have cap they put mocap things on all like everywhere on his face, so you would mm-hmm. think it would look just like him. But because they made him so much slimmer, he also looks weirdly like Fred Durst. <laughs> <laughs> it's really uncanny. Um, yeah, it's very uncanny Valley filmmaking. Yeah, so Beowulf is is brought in to uh, to slay the beast, and uh, the beast. Uh, also, as a mother, who's played by Angelina Jolie, looking very much like Angelina Jolie. Uh, now, the the weird thing is that she's the only actor in the film who um, wasn't be didn't go through the mocap treatment. She's pretty much just animated, as far as I can tell. Um, interesting choice. I mean, she's also naked for her entire the entirety of her appearances, so I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. Anyway, so and then there's a second part of the film that uh, takes place 50 years later when Beowulf is quite old and there's another foe to, to go after. And in the original poem, um, which I, I, I don't know what people's familiarity with it is at home, um, the epilogue, which involves this dragon that Beowulf has to slay, is more or less unconnected to what happens before. So uh, some combination of Roger Avery and Neil Gaiman, Gaiman, whatever, um, came up with this more modern treatment where, um, you know, Beowulf is this flawed character, which I'm sure we can get into, and the stuff that happens in the uh, in the third act is directly connected to what came before. And, um, yeah, totally different set of character motivations and relationships from the original story. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to uh, go deeper into this point, though. So basically, like, any of these ancient poems, if you actually read them, I had to do a few in college, but they're, they're all like sort of uh, very episodic and they don't really have the, you know, the arcs that we associate with storytelling or contemporary or modern mm-hmm. storytelling. So it, it does, it, it builds the story of Beowulf into a three act story and it includes very liberal license with the original plot. Um, ooh, my dog's unhappy. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, should we get into what the twist is? Because it, it builds on the idea, uh, Avery's idea, that uh, Beowulf was an unreliable narrator in the mm-hmm. actual poem. Right, yeah. The the movie plays, uh, I think Ebert called it a satire of the original, which, I mean, I guess is one way to put it. Um, it feels like a, um, it feels, yeah, it sort of feels like a, a, a criticism or a calling out of the original, which is like, which which I feel a bit bad about, because it's not like the original authors are around to defend themselves. <laughs> Um, but not just that, but like a critique of the the sort of like ancient ideals of heroism and, and like right, yeah. And, the movie the movie yeah. doesn't seem to think highly of kings, yeah, and of these these heroic types. Right, let's just get into it because anybody who's you know, if, if you're it. worried about spoilers, just go watch it. I thought you um, say let's get into it. This is a critique of Bush. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into that later. Yeah. But uh, basically, uh, in the in the movie, but not necessarily in the poem. Um, Grendel is the son of uh, Angelina Jolie's monster and King Hrothgar. Uh, so once he is defeated by Beowulf, Beowulf then goes to defeat the mother uh, and ends up sleeping with her and burying another son. As one does. But comes down and is rewarded for his uh, 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 his betrayal of mankind, I guess, mm-hmm. by uh, being given the kingship uh, by some sort of, you know, magical fiat or whatever which is actually like one of the more interesting things about the movie is how ambiguous that is yeah we don't Mm -hmm. really get a sense of what grendel's mother's power is over the situation Mm -hmm. like the anthony hopkins character hrothgar 
basically just like re- senses that he's no longer cursed and just hops off of castle wall, like just you know, offs himself. Mm-hmm. But like, to what extent is she is she puppeteering this? We really don't know. That was kind of neat. Uh, and then at the end, uh, uh, I suppose this is the major spoiler, but. Uh, he, uh, he's supposed to remain king as long as there's this, uh, I don't know, magical Golden horn, horn. Mm-hmm. or whatever that's left with Grendel's mother. And then at some point, one of the people from the uh, castle takes it or finds it somewhere, which brings the wrath of uh, Beowulf's son and Grendel's mother's other son. <laughs> Sorry. I like but to another imagine... monster who is the, the dragon... I like to imagine, since they share a co-writer, that the Golden Horn is actually what's in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the same long story. Uh, but getting into the the, <laughs> the now, um, I guess, regular uh, demonstration of how this is a metaphor for American foreign policy. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, I do think it's it seems possible in this case that it was even intentional. Uh with, with the sort of idea that uh, Western countries uh, reap the consequences of their adventurism in you know, and and sort of moral crusades to other lands where they do things and don't really think about the consequences, uh, and also just a general critique of the you know the idea that you can tell or the, the heroism and and the idea of Beowulf as this uh, unchallenged conqueror. Mm-hmm. Well, do we think this is a fair thing to attribute to Robert Zemeckis? I mean, we were talking before about the show about how his politics might be a, are a little uh, indecipherable to some extent, or he's just apolitical in general, but maybe this is just... Well, I mean, the, the common criticism, as we also mentioned, uh, of Forrest Gump is that mm-hmm. it's a sort of Reagan-era mm-hmm. fantasy or that, it's that set, came out in the or Clinton as era. Some <laughs> people I've heard say, even in person, that it set the template for the Bush presidency. It normalized the idea of an idiot in charge, which is a little contentious, but... I actually haven't seen Forrest Gump in, like, two decades. So, so really you might want to keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I think if they were going for some sort of contemporary critique, I don't think it really works. I mean, mm. the, the angle of the, you know, foreign adventurism is bad or misguided is, like, really buried if that's what they were yeah. going for i mean well it, they also kept repeating the line like the sins of our fathers which, that comes yeah. you're right mm-hmm. that comes near the end um it's kind of shoehorned in there um but and it's also this sort of like uh, a new era of uh violence erupts anew out of like a sort of degenerate culture that had developed i, I think there's some metaphors that like yeah, the 9-11 so, era that kind of come out here it's so <laughs> archetypal though like it's so generalized that i, I find it difficult to it fe- and also because of the the Gaiman co-write, like he, it, it just it feels more like they're commenting on archetypes and myths, and not so much going for. I know that you know you can read into things based on when they were produced and the conditions and blah blah blah. Yeah. But just based on the people involved, mm-hmm. I don't. It does. It doesn't feel right to even look for that kind. Well, of that's thing. why we sort of thought maybe it was Avery's the Avery touch. <laughs> but then, it, but then what you know what. I mean, Avery's worldview is, like, uh, it's a very sort of uh, caustic and cynical worldview, at least mm-hmm. as, as presented by Rules of Attraction. Yeah, of um, so I, I don't think that's above him. And I also think that um, when you look at this movie, obviously, like, you can't just do a straight adaptation of Beowulf. Uh, so they, they work it into this three-act structure. But the sort of easy way to do that would have been to do the uh, Joseph Campbell, like, turn him into that kind of an archetypal hero. And they don't do that. 
Because right. it starts the movie, and, like, Beowulf is just this alpha guy who, like, wanders around Scandinavia murdering sea monsters and having sex with mermaids. Uh, and they actually want to comment on that type of heroism or that, like, kind of an archetype versus doing what, you know, is the standard of Hollywood filmmaking. Right. Um, way more than it's any kind of, like, contemporary critique, maybe it feels more like, and I, this is the oldest line in the goddamn book, but it feels like it's a movie about storytelling. And um, there's a great, I think, actually the best scene in the movie comes pretty early when um, uh, the John Malkovich character, Unferth, who... Uh, John Malkovich is great. He's yeah. really, really great. Um, it makes you realize that John Malkovich has a face for motion capture <laughs> that Ray Winstone does not have. Like, he does not emote with his face. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a scene where Unferth presents him with a sword, and he's like, please, take my sword, even though it's kind of shitty or whatever. And Ray Winstone's response to this is, and his face doesn't move, and I don't think he understands, and he wasn't directed to, like, really make the most of the technology, uh, but Malkovich is perfect for it. Um, anyway, Unferth challenges him about his, you know, heroic credentials, and he tells this story about how he, um, he was in this swimming challenge that he only lost because he had to slay all these beasts at the same time. Um, but then it sets up the idea that he's an unreliable narrator, because he actually was he tempted. Yeah, yeah, he completely lies. He was, you know, tempted by a siren instead of, uh, instead of, was, and it also sets up this, this thread about vanity and lust. And, um, what I find really, really interesting about this movie is that it feels both of its time, like, of its very precise time mm -hmm. in terms of the technology that's being used, but also, I feel like if this had been made even just, like, a few years later, people would have been really mad about what it was saying. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's another thing I kind of predicted, at least on a technological standpoint, was all the like digital roaming tracking shots in this movie. How how like just free the camera yeah. was. Yeah. I mean, you see that a bit in the Lord of the Rings movies a few years earlier, but this is like kind of pretty crazy, especially a lot of point of view shots of like birds or things. And flying. I mean, he essentially uh, just uses like pans instead mm -hmm. of uh, cuts in yeah. certain scenes. Yeah. Sure. Which is interesting. Um, but I think we really can't stress enough, uh, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but um, it looks like shit. It looks <laughs> no, fucking I, awful. It looks like video game cutscenes. It <laughs> looks worse than... No, like, the, there have been so many advance... It's not really his fault. It's just there have been so many advancements yeah. in this sort of imagery in the last... Uh, in the decade since it came out, that now, like, you can play Red Dead Redemption 2 and mm. it looks better than this. And it's like... It's not great. Well, what would you... T I mean, I sort of think, though, the ultimate evil of this kind of technology is, like, the Peter Cushing reconstruction in Star Wars Rogue One, right? Like, sure, what would yeah. you take as worse? This, the slightly dead eyes Well, you know... Well, that's the... morally worse. Yeah. But I think this is aesthetically I mean, Zemeckis worse. is, like, on the forefront of that, especially, like, I think around the same time, like, he, he was making these movies, like, there was some hubbub about, like, uh, Sean Connery returned to voice James Bond in a video game, and he used his likeness, and that sort of posed the question of, like, can we start bringing back old movie stars? Mm -hmm. And this was at the forefront of that. So they make Ray Winstone younger. And uh, I should mention, Robert Zemeckis did the classic uh, Tales from the Crypt episode, Ryu Murder, where he recreates Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> so, I mean, he predicted that cut. And, like, now we're at the state where they're using digital de-aging technology on, uh, well, coming out, I guess, is it coming out this month, but on Samuel L. Jackson for Captain Marvel. Yeah. And uh, next year, I'm really dreading this, but... The Irishman. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. We're going to have a digitally de-aged Al Pacino and Bobby De Niro, uh, which is 
sort of nightmarish and it like kind of reiterates the whole idea that postmodernism is just this like endless recycling of, of mm-hmm. you know iconic things from the past speaking of which for some future episode of this podcast can you please review that uh 25 minute short film that martin scorsese made to, prom- to promote a casino has that even been released I'm, I'm sure you can find it somewhere i, I heard it was uh, hidden in a vault somewhere <laughs> really executive promote produ- a casino when, uh, when was this it was a few years ago it starred i remember the wine bobby d leonardo dicaprio oh uh, and scorsese himself written by uh, Boardwalk Empire guy Terrence and was it like uh, produced by Brett Ratner <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it was okay. and it was all just to promote a casino um, I saw the one like he, he made it for like some fancy wine and it was like a rear window homage yeah it was pretty good for what it was <laughs> anyway that was a total side thing um, but and I guess I don't know I, I couldn't help but think about how shitty it looked because so much of them like it's it's hard not to imagine a version of this that would have probably taken twice as long to make but would have been half the budget where all the stuff with people was live action basically and it probably would have just looked a lot better yeah and this was also the same time that like sin city and um, sky captain were coming oh yeah out. And, you know these movies that sort of at least pioneered the idea that you could shoot an entire movie uh, on a green screen sure but sin city had those hyper stylized yeah. environments and things like that whereas this is basically just in places with people and yeah nature but this is basically what like i don't know like, uh, most of Walt is now. Like, it's not that much. Yeah. Uh, most, like, act, like, blockbusters are largely yeah. shot almost entirely on green screen. Sure, but now they look like yeah. reality. Yeah. Well, well it's funny because I'm, like, sort of open to Zemeck, even though I don't really like Polar Express, I'm sort of open to him experimenting. But when I saw the trailer for Welcome to Marwan, I almost vomited <laughs> in my fucking mouth. Like, have I'm you, like, have no, you seen... I can't. Have you seen Marwin Call? The documentary? No, I've heard of it, but... I saw the documentary at the Fantasia Film Festival when it premiered. I think that was seven or eight years ago. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was really um, mm-hmm. really moving. I haven't gotten to see it again. But, uh... And then the, seeing the trailer for Welcome to Marwin was just horrific. When, actually, if she... I don't know, this is how I felt about downsizing. Yeah. And then people actually kind of like downsizing. Well, so. not, uh, not enough people, clearly. <laughs> no, you know what really got me about that trailer was the music cue. Um, I, shit, I forget what the song is, but whatever song they use, like yeah. sing, like the lyrics sync up yeah, so yeah. precisely with what's going on in the trailer that you just want to die. <laughs> yeah, that's where I kind of got to end. My, that's my that's my uh, my stepping off point with Robert Zemeckis on tourism. Is welcome to Marwan. <laughs> even just the trailer. Yeah, I, I saw the trailer even in a theater recently. I actually turned away. I didn't want to like look at. <laughs> it's mortifying. I know. Mortifying. <laughs> Now I have to see it. Yeah. Just, just this level of disgust. Yeah. It's, it's drawing me in. Uh, did you see Allied? Yeah, pretty I good. I thought it was alright. Yeah, pretty alright. <laughs> the, the I didn't see Flight, but it seemed the flight, pretty good. good. The walk is good. What uh, is it? I don't, I don't understand this, this impulse. The walk. That, like, to be honest, the motion capture impulse, I understand, just because you get to, you get to play with, uh, with, new, with new technology, and when you watch the footage of him on set, it looks like he's having a lot of fun. This impulse to do big budget remakes of... Perfectly fine documentary. Yeah. <laughs> very, very strange to me. But he does want to do it and like use special effects in a certain way. Like the walk was supposed to be a big IMAX event, and I saw it in IMAX with three other people in the theater. I, Did I, it feel like an event? Uh, <laughs> an event for me. <laughs> uh, just the thought of Joseph Gordon-Levitt doing that accent for an entire movie <laughs> oh, is like, mortifying. The, his opening scene of the movie is literally him on a unicycle, like in black <laughs> and white, like juggling. I think. <laughs> I remember that that like the documentary is pretty funny because the French guy like 
who like did it with the help of his girlfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, the minute I got out of the jail, I uh, went and slept with the first woman I found. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's just a huge piece of shit. I, I hope, I hope that at least that his uh, that his film captured that. But no, um, no he seems like a great guy. <laughs> you know, I am um, the the uh, the thing that I do when I'm not guesting on this podcast is I, I host a podcast about technology called Hacks. And um, so I, I think I want to address a little bit that side of it, uh, because to me, this this movie is like a classic example of uh, doing stuff because you can and not necessarily mm-hmm. because you should. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, I really think the screenplay is quite good, like, to be honest. I wouldn't necessarily expect that from a Roger Avery co-write, <laughs> you know, really dodgy track record there. But, uh, and although I do like Rules of Attraction, Um I think that, I think a version of this film that had kept the same screenplay but hadn't gone for this sort of gonzo CG approach, I think really could have been, like, not something that I would have avoided for my entire life, <laughs> except if it weren't for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, the the original Avery version was supposed to be a low-budget thing, and then apparently, like, they rewrote just a scene of people talking into the dragon action scene, <laughs> which is... Pretty funny. Uh, so is that I, how I the have, movie would have ended with a scene of people talking? I guess so. Like I don't know. Well, maybe it would have been like him facing off with his son, you know, uh, in some weird and you know dramatic way. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of see where you're coming from. On the other hand, I don't know if I would have trusted the pure Roger Avery vision to, to like make well, a really worthwhile film out of this. I don't know what the process was of developing the screenplay, my guess would be the Avery script came first and then Gaiman came in to maybe make it less shitty. Because, <laughs> um, you know, regardless of his association with Amanda Palmer, he's a talented guy. And he's got, and he's got a lot of, um, a lot of his work really touches on, um, you know, the appeal of mythology. So, um, I, I have to think that a lot of that auto critique of storytelling was Gaiman's contribution. Well, what I read is that apparently Roger Avery originally wanted to adapt Sandman into a movie, so he met up with Gaiman to like write the script together. Then that project fell apart, and they're like, "Oh, what if we did Beowulf?" Is Avery the guy who wrote the screenplay adaptation of the Sandman that contained the line "I'm the Sandman, bitch"? Possibly, because <laughs> that will that sounds right. Yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> Uh, and we were also just discussing, Roger Avery apparently directed a movie last year, which has not seen the light of day. No. Uh, I, yeah, I, I keep seeing that on his uh, IMDb page. Yeah, it looks, um, it looks pretty low rent, but I'm, I'm curious. That's Crispin Glover? Yeah, Crispin Glover and then Nina Dobrev of Degrassi. Was, <laughs> is, he out of, is, is he out of jail? Is that he, what yeah. he was only in jail for a year, I think. That yeah. right. Well, we should mention that in this movie, this is the movie where Robert Zemeckis and Crispin Glover buried the hatchet because there had been a famous feud uh, between the two when uh, Glover didn't want to come back for Back to the Future Part 2, so Zemeckis just used his likeness without... Oh, yeah, him. yeah, you only see him from the back. Yeah, too, yeah, and yeah. Glover, I think, was, like, sued him or something. <laughs> but they, uh, they made they made him. I love the idea that Crispin Glover's likeness, like, mm-hmm. just his general attitude is <laughs> somehow copyrightable. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll say I had fun on this, this revisit. I, I, it's a... I was and I was, I was sort of pleasantly surprised. I expected it to have a reaction similar to Simon be like, "Ooh," but I mean, I did. Re- you eventually get used to it, but I don't yeah. think it ever stops looking like shit. You just get used to the fact yeah. that it looks mm-hmm. like shit. I mean, there is definitely some to the idea that it's a, the dead eyes. Yeah, like it's creepy. But the dead I mean, eyes—it's it's the smooth yeah. skin, the yeah, perfectly yeah. smooth, poreless skin. 
All right. I just checked my notes, and the only thing I didn't mention was a, uh, I had a list of Nietzsche references that I was going to make. I'll, I'll leave those because they're tacked on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what we should talk about is uh, our man Jeff Wells being banned the from Sundance. Sundance. We are starting... Free the, Jeff Wells. <laughs> the resistance starts here. Let's get... Oh, shit. You should just, like, pose as, like, a young kid and go into, like, a young critics academy or something. Like, just I love that he's going to have to go to Sundance and, like, buy tickets yeah. and just be, like, embarrassed. Embarrassed in front of all of his like. Yeah. I don't think he's capable of embarrassment. Yeah, that's true. He is that's sort of true. Like, he did crash James Gandolfini's funeral. He did. He did wear. He did. He did have a cowboy hat phase too. <laughs> uh, he's invincible. Like yeah. I'm jealous. I do think that like I don't know all these people who are like cheering about this. It's like why do you want institutions to like arbitrarily decide which journalists are worthy of like access or yeah. not? Like it's it seems like. Like obviously, it's it's an arbitrary line. I don't think it's like an attack on free speech. It, was there like anything that, in particular that prompted it? I well, like I remember when he got a priority pass to TIFF last year. Um, there were a few critics who were like really mad about that, and I feel like, you know, Jeff Wells blamed it on wokeness. I think he's probably right. Although, like Jeff Wells has done some like seriously shitty things. Yeah, so. oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those classic situations where like. In principle, yes, I'm not wild about the idea. <laughs> Am I going to shed tears over Jeffrey Wells no. being barred from something? Absolutely not. I'm going to. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's giving us so much joy just to watch him, like, writhe. He called it Stalinoid, yeah. I believe. He should, go to, he should just go to Slam Dance instead. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm sure all the real filmmakers Oscar, at, at, all the real at Slam Dance really love are, to see him there. Yeah, so, Jeff, we're, free Jeff Wells. we're looking out for you, Jeff. <laughs> Hashtag free Jeff Wells. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's start a Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> To buy all his tickets. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, uh, well, you can find the uh, podcast I do at hacks.fm. Um, we talk about uh, technology and politics, and we try to be funny and not horribly depressing about it, and sometimes <laughs> I think we do okay. Um, we just did an episode about um, the state of journalism and the internet that was uh, surprisingly fun to do and didn't make me want to put a shotgun in my mouth. So that was good. What did you talk about? We talked about the spate of closures, like Mike.com and um, other places, sort of the this sort of roundabout union busting that's happening, as well as the um, the attempt to uh, like put journalism on a blockchain with the civil project, which maybe you do or don't know anything about. And uh, if you don't, we explain it all and talk about why it's dumb, <laughs> which is really my favorite thing. It was, it was not, I mean, maybe not dumb on paper, but execution definitely left something, uh, something to be desired. Uh, they are, they, they probably are going to take another crack at it at some point, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so you can find that at hacks.fm. It's also on iTunes and all the places that you might expect to find things. And on Spotify, which I didn't think oh, were. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah.